Hello everyone and welcome to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. It's been a minute. <laughs> Thanks for being patient while I moved countries and started a new position. This episode is coming to you from North Wales and close to Bangor University where I'm now based. It's been a great spring so far here in Wales and something I'm thinking about a lot as I set up my research group is establishing and passing on good habits and practices when it comes to open science. And that's the topic of our discussion today with Dr. Kate Laskowski, Dr. Rebecca Oman and Dr. Holly Marshall. We also have a fascinating paper to dig into this episode about lost migrations and how we might go about restoring them. First up, though, I talked to Kate about her career and research. That's up next on the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kate Laskowski, a behavioral ecologist and assistant professor at the University of California in Davis. Kate and her lab investigate the causes and consequences of behavioral diversity with a particular focus on variation between individuals and answering these questions in fish model systems. I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you, Kate. So thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast. Yeah, of course. This is going to be fun, I'm sure. So before we get into individual behavioral development and the fascinating projects you've got going on, uh, let's talk a bit about how you got here. So um, what first sparked your interest in science and behavior in particular? Um, Probably my parents. You know, my dad was a wildlife biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service and my mom was a middle school principal, uh, but also had a big focus in science, started off as a science educator. And so I spent just a lot of time volunteering with my dad. I remember like banding wood ducks um, and then going and like tagging horseshoe crabs and like helping at like the deer hunter check stations. And so I think he was trying to steer me towards like wildlife biology, but I wasn't in love with it. And then I, of course, I think is lots of young folks, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so I was all geared up to go to veterinary school. And in undergrad, I knew it was really important to uh, have some sort of research lab experience on your CV. And so I um, approached my evolution professor who I think did, I said, hey, do you have any space for me? And he's like, yeah, sure, come in. And so he had a quantitative genetics fruit fly lab. And I remember at first being like, ah, oh, fruit flies, this is going to be boring. <laughs> uh, but then we started like talking about things and he had some like projects where he was looking at co-evolution between parasitoid wasps and fruit flies. But I just remember asking him something of like, well, why do they do that? And he was like, Kate, I don't know. And I was like, what? And he's like, but you're going to find out. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and that is like when I finally clicked of like, this is what research is, is just, just asking questions and figuring out the answer to it. And that was really like the light bulb moment where I was like, oh, it's not veterinary science I want to do. I want to do like research. And so that's really what set me off on this track. So you did your PhD at the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were looking at individual differences in behavior in stickleback. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me a bit about that project and what, well, let's start with what are consistent individual differences? Yeah. So consistent individual differences in behavior are exactly that in the sense that if you were to measure a group of animals, uh, you know, multiple times, you would find that almost certainly you could start to predict that some animals would be consistently more 
the most active ones or the most aggressive ones or the least active or least aggressive. And so when we talk about that, sometimes people call it animal personality, um, which I'm not crazy about that term because personality is quite loaded with the human context. But what we're talking about is just consistent individual differences in behavior. So how did that play out in the stickleback and what, what kinds of behaviors were you looking at? So there was, at the time, there was lots of interest in consistent individual differences in behavior, like where do they come from? Why do they exist? And there are several theoretical models that had been developed and, you know, trying to understand mainly how like competition and social interactions might be a key force in, in driving these differences. And so I was trying to develop um, some behavioral assays to test these. And because competition was so important in these models, I decided to look in these competitive foraging contexts. And so I'd put the fish in these arenas and I'd have like food patches available to them in different places or different times, and then measure like, how did they use those food patches? And, you know, did their behavior change or not based on the competitive environment? It's like, which foraging areas did they use? And did they use them uh, consistently? And so this sort of tied into, you know, we had like the ideal free distribution um, which is another theory in ecology as sort of like our null hypothesis. And, you know, that predicts that animals should distribute themselves among food resources in sort of a ideal free way. And uh, it turns out sticklebacks do that, um, but it's not that all individuals are equally moving among the different food patches. What's happening is that you have a few highly responsive animals who are like zipping in between the food patches. And they're the ones who sort of drive this population level ideal free distribution. And so that's what we saw is that, yes, there's some individual, I mean, all of the individuals are quite consistent, um, but these like few highly responsive animals are having a really big impact. So you moved on after your PhD to do some postdoctoral work in Germany. Uh, were yeah. you working on similar research themes and how did you enjoy being in Europe? Yeah, um, similar and different. Those models that I talked about testing for my PhD, they were all written by this guy, Max Wolf. Uh, he is German. And then right when I was finishing up, he uh, advertised for a postdoc in, at his institute. And I was like, well, obviously I have to apply. And there it was not so much looking at, let's say, the drivers of individual behavioral variation. Um, there the goal was to look at the consequences of individual behavioral variation. And so I spent a couple of years um, trying to understand how does individual behavior in sort of a food web context, uh, does that influence how these species within a food web interact? So we'll we'll come back to food webs a bit later because I yeah. know you have a new paper out on that, which is really cool. Um, but you're, in your current lab, you, you started as a PI a couple of years ago or just over mm -hmm. a year. So you're now working on the developmental drivers of behavioral individuality. What does that mean <laughs> <more> general listeners. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so this is sort of going back to a developmental perspective in the sense of, so when does behavioral variation like emerge within an animal's lifetime? And so, you know, because behavior is such a flexible trait, even though we know animals do show these consistent differences, like what are the things that are happening, you know, early in their life or throughout their life to sort of shape their behavior? And so that's what we're focusing on now. So you're using a fish called the Amazon molly. Yes. Uh, and this sound, I hadn't heard of, of this fish before looking into your research, and it sounds incredibly cool <laughs> and very unusual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so it reproduces clonally. Yeah. 
what does that mean? It's <laughs> totally bizarre. Why? <laughs> um, no, she is incredible. And so she is what we would call a clonal or a unisexual vertebrate. And so she reproduces clonally. Um, and so what she does is she, her eggs that she makes are like the complete set of chromosomes. It's like the whole genome. You know, most eggs that animals, sexually reproducing animals have only half their genome. And then it, you know, links up with sperm and then you have a whole animal. Um, her eggs have the complete genome. And so that's truly like a true clone of herself. Um, so that's super cool. Uh, the totally bizarre thing about the Amazon Molly though, is that she still needs to um, have that egg fuse with a sperm from a different species in order to like tell the egg like, oh, it's time to start developing, turn into a baby. Um, and, but then that sperm just gets kind of like pushed out and they don't use it. So it's like some people call them sperm parasites. Um, and I keep calling her her because it is an all female species. Um, so all of the, the Amazons, they're all females. Um, they produce female babies and they steal sperm from two closely related species. And so that's where her name come from, comes from. In fact, she's not from Brazil. Uh, she is from Texas, uh, but she's named after the all-female Greek warriors. And so that just like really satisfies the feminist <laughs> need to be working on this all-female like warrior fish. Like how cool. That is the wildest life history that I think I've yeah. ever heard about. So I can see a few ways that that could be really interesting uh, in terms of, of research, but how how does that life history kind of fit with your your research and the questions you're trying to answer? I'm interested in, you know, the, the causes of individual behavioral variation. And we know that, you know, genetic variation contributes to this. And we know that environmental variation contributes to this and that these things always interact in very complex ways. And so it's really hard to like really kind of pinpoint how these different um, sources of variation are influencing individual phenotype. And so the Molly is just incredible because she's like a natural twin study. You know, I now can remove genetic variation from the equation and really focus in on how do environmental or different personal experiences affect behavior. So we've talked a bit about how intraspecific variation behavior might develop, mm -hmm. but what's the what's the importance of this variation or the, the consequences? And yeah. I know you've got an, a new paper out which demonstrates this looking at uh, what's called predator group composition indirectly influences food web dynamics through predator growth rates. Um, mm -hmm. So if, sorry, if that title is a spoiler, but sorry, let's go back to the question. What, what's the, why is individual variation in behavior important in an ecological context? Yeah, well, we know that individual behavioral variation is important for the individual because we know it affects like important fitness proxies like survival or reproduction. Um, and so now here you out for my postdoc, we were trying to scale up and say like, how does this individual behavioral variation affect ecological processes? And so there's lots of theories suggesting that like, as soon as you have animals that are different from each other in a population that can actually affect in pretty dramatic ways, theoretically, how they interact with other populations or other species. Uh, so I developed this sort of experimental food web where I use European perch as my top predators. And the good thing about perch is they show really strong, consistent individual differences in behavior. And so I measured a bunch of perch. I figured out sort of what their behavior um, strategy was. And we had some animals that were like really active. They recovered quickly from when you scared them. And then we had other fish that were really inactive. And <laughs> if you scared them, they didn't move for, for hours, it seemed. 
And so I made them into like different predator groups where we had all of them were either all these active types. We had other groups where they were all these inactive types. And then we had, of course, the mix of the two. And then I threw them into these. We had these experimental ponds at the Institute in Berlin. Um, and these ponds I had seeded already with lots of macroinvertebrates. So, you know, things like gammarids or amphipods and dragonfly larvae and bloodworms. And so we put them in there and they would eat these macroinvertebrates. And then we also had in there some re basal resources for the invertebrates to eat, like leaf litter, um, periphyton, that sort of thing. And then we just watched what happened <laughs> in the sense like, did a predator group that was all the active individuals have a different effect on those lower trophic levels than the predator group that was either the mix or the inactive ones? The big result is that there wasn't a major effect. And so this was a little bit surprising given that like the theory really says there should be strong dramatic effects. The, the perch ate the macroinvertebrates and the macroinvertebrates ate the leaf litter. And that was certainly important, but we didn't see really um, big differences among the different predator treatments except in that the really active perch, they grew faster. And so that meant that at the end of the six week experiment, those active perch were bigger. Um, and so those ponds that had more like perch biomass in them had stronger effects on the food web. And so our argument or my interpretation of this is that, well, maybe behavior isn't directly impacting mm. the food web, but because behavior is linked with growth rate and then growth rate will end up producing a bigger animal that has a bigger impact on the food web, like that's the link of how it's working. Mm. Uh, so I think behavior probably does have effects on food webs, but it might not be as, as direct as we initially thought. Yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. So do you have any big experiments with the Amazon Molly going on at the moment? <clears throat> yes, yeah, sir. We're about to start them. It's been a time getting a lab up and running uh, during COVID, uh, but we are getting ready to start some big experiments where we're um, going to manipulate the personal experience use that these Amazon mollies have and then follow their behavior over time. And this is especially cool because we have developed this really cool um, tracking system. And so this tracking system is like the fish big brother. And so we can put these newborn baby mollies and then over top of the tanks, we have these Raspberry Pi computers and they take a photo every second whenever the lights are on. And so that's like ridiculous amounts of data, super high res information about exactly what that animal is doing in its early life. And so, you know, we can start like adding in predator cues or give them social interactions and then see how do they change their behavior. So you alluded there to some interesting uh, challenges that you may not have been able to <laughs> foresee in your first couple of years as a new PI. Um, how, have you, how have you coped generally with, with that? <laughs> that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got my um, job and I started at Davis in the fall of 2019. You know, I was like so stoked. I got the faculty position, like, oh my God. I, and I get here. Um, and two months later, I had to end up dealing with a bunch of paper retractions <laughs> that turns out my colleague who collected all the data, uh, there seems to be evidence of data manipulation or fraud. And so I had to deal with that for months and months and months. I was coming out of that and it felt like that whole mess was starting to die down. I was going to get my feet back under me. And that was February of 2020. 
And I vividly remember, like, I have a journal where I write notes for every day. And like on, it was like February 20th or something. And I was like, oh, it seems that the whole thing with the retractions is like dying down. Like, <laughs> 2020 can be nothing but up from here. And then, of course, pandemic hit like three weeks later. Um, I mean, navigating the pandemic, trying to build a lab. You know, my two grad students who started, they started in fall of 2020 and their whole first year was via Zoom. Um, yeah, more layers of difficulty. Yeah, but here we are. I mean, I think we're getting our feet under us and we're doing, we're doing pretty good, all things considered. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me about your research and you're going to stick around for our group discussion. Um, yep. So that will be coming up next. So stay tuned for that. Cool. Today's paper in focus is about wildlife migrations, what it means to lose a migration and how we might restore those that we've lost. I'm joined by the lead author, Kristen Barker, a doctoral candidate at UC Berkeley studying migration ecology and predator-prey interactions. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we're going to focus on the migration ecology part of your research today, but your PhD work spans quite a broad range of topics. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about your wider project and how those strands come together? Right. So I'm I'm broadly interested in behavioral ecology, but my uh, for my dissertation work, I'm kind of focusing on um, some specific study species and systems. So I'm looking mostly right now at wolves and elk in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so we're looking at kind of how those animals interact with each other, especially in a human influence landscape, not just in protected areas, and then also kind of how those interactions affect the animals and their populations. So your recent paper, which came out at the end of last year in Conservation Letters, is called Towards a New Framework for Restoring Lost Wildlife Migrations. Can you first uh, just explain to me what it means to lose a migration and what the effects are of such a loss? Um, so there are, there are a lot of ways to lose a migration. Um, so if you think of migration as like a group of animals of seasonally moving from one place to another and back again. Um, sometimes those animals stop doing that and it might be because they've all died or it might be because they've just decided not to move anymore and they're staying in one place or it might be because they're still moving but they're going somewhere different now. Um, you know, animals can move over hundreds of thousands of miles and they're they're not just moving themselves, right? So they're they're transferring nutrients. You know, sometimes they have seeds hitching rides on them, and so they actually connect all these different ecosystems, and they they contribute a lot to plant community structure and to nutrient cycling. Um, they're fueling populations of other species that eat them, um, and they're kind of changing predation risk for other similar species. So there are really big effects that can be seen throughout the ecosystem when those migrations are lost. I guess the, the first thing that I thought of when I was thinking about lost migrations is perhaps uh, when humans create a barrier, uh, like the border wall, for example, or just, you know, if, if, if the migration path used to go through what's now a city and then they then have to divert. But it sounds like there are actually quite a lot of natural ways to, for, for a migration to stop. Barriers to movement are big ones. Um, so kind of the three of the most common things that people note that make migration stop are yeah, barriers to movement, which don't have to be from humans, you know, maybe an earthquake changes the landscape mm. in some way. Another 
big one that's not human related would be um, climate change affecting the resources that those animals are moving to. So say some birds are going somewhere because that's where they get the really good food. And because of climate change, that food isn't growing well anymore. So there's no reason for them to go to that place anymore. Um, and then just kind of habitat fragmentation in general is the other big one. And that again can be you know, human caused or not. Are there any particularly good examples of migrations that once occurred and no longer do? I mean, the one that hits closest to home for me is the uh, the bison migrations across mm. the plains of North America, which used to be huge and are now no longer. Although there are also really impressive work has been done to start restoring those animals uh, onto the landscape. So speaking of restoring um, animals and, and lost migrations, in this paper, you describe three strategies for doing that. Can you talk me through each of those? Uh, yeah, so we we looked at examples of how people had restored lost migrations across the world and across a whole lot of different types of animals. Um, and based on that, we kind of found three general themes um, that you could try and focus an effective restoration effort on. So you can restore habitat in some way. So that would address an issue sort of underlying um, that the animals aren't benefiting from migratory habitat anymore. Um, you can restore the animals to an area. So let's say they all died out and that's why they're not migrating. You can try putting some back. Um, and of course, it's important to note that you might need to do some of these at the same time. So it's not, there's no use putting animals back into a habitat that is not <laughs> good. Hmm. Um, and then the, the third thing that we identified that I think is um, kind of less recognized as an option is that you can work to restore a behavior itself. So sometimes the animals are still there, the habitat's still there, and they're just not moving anymore. Um, and it turns out that it's possible to restore those behaviors either by um, teaching animals directly, which has been done a few times, uh, or by just kind of helping them learn from one another. How do you teach an animal to migrate? <laughs> those are very uh, special cases in which you can do that one. Um, the most well-known work has been with um, Canada geese and trumpeter swans. Basically, they would have chicks imprint on researchers. So the chick has to imprint on you right when it's born. And they could then you know, teach the chicks their behaviors. And so they ended up actually leading animals along historic migration routes with um, ultralight aircraft. And then the birds would um, resume the behavior themselves the next year after they had learned. Your work more broadly is often closely linked to effective wildlife management. How would you ideally like to see these concepts being integrated potentially into management practices in the US or around the world? Um, my hope is that lessons from this paper can help direct limited resources, you know, to avoid uh, sort of wasting things or setting something up for failure. It's helpful to just sort of have a framework to begin with of what might work and what might not work. And one of the things we really tried to do in this paper is for each one of those three strategies that we outlined, we linked them back to the key things that were the most important for those strategies to actually work. So we looked at aspects mostly of behavioral ecology to say, okay, if you want to say restore a behavior, you need to know, you know how to teach those animals. You need to know if you can and, and how you can. And so um, hopefully going through the options that other people have published that have worked using the sort of insights of what you need to know to know whether that would be successful or not and how to go about doing it will hopefully help um, direct limited resources where they might be most useful. 
Uh, you say on your website that fieldwork is your favorite part of research, which I can relate to. Uh, if you could only do fieldwork in one place for the rest of your life, where would it be? It would be in the U.S. Rocky Mountains. Oh, that was a that was a, a quick answer. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that area really feels like home to me. That's where I've done most of my fieldwork. Actually, this is the first season that I haven't been doing fieldwork, and I, I don't know how long. I just finished up last three years of my dissertation fieldwork. So, um, yep, I'm gunning to get back to the mountains <laughs> as quickly yeah. as possible, and I would very much like to stay and do fieldwork there. <laughs> Well, I hope you get back there soon uh, and good luck with the rest of your of your dissertation uh, and congratulations on the paper. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was really fun talking. Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm back with Dr. Kate Laskowski, and we are lucky enough to be joined today by two returning friends of the podcast for our roundtable discussion. Dr. Rebecca Oman, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo and senior researcher at the University of Ogder, and Dr. Holly Marshall, a postdoc at the University of Leicester. So welcome back, everyone. Before we get into today's discussion topic, Rebecca, how have you been since we last spoke to you in October of 2020, which is ages ago now? Oh my goodness. It feels like so long ago, yet also like it was yesterday. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened in between. <laughs> so what projects are you working on at the moment? Um, your background picture still shows the COD, so I assume you are still uh, involved with the COD? Yeah. They really roped me in for the long haul. Cod are actually just so fascinating. I can't seem to leave them. Um, yeah, I'm still working on, on similar kinds of questions about how cod are adapted to different environments and how this affects their response to changes in the environment. Like we talked last time about uh, fishing and how that might affect their evolutionary responses. Sort of branching out also just generally interested in this question of how we can use all this genomic data that's being created for so many species around the world, how we can really harness that to conserve biodiversity in the face of its rapid and unfortunate decline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last time we talked, you were you you were kickstarting this um, art, music, uh, science project about the cod drumming. Have you got an, an update for us on how that has been going? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really fun project we've had for now a couple of years. Um, it's called Torsketrumming or cod drumming, that's in Norwegian. And it's all about exploring the importance of the mating song of cod. So it's been a really fun project and we actually did a tour last fall of this performance piece that we created where we combined the cod drumming recordings that we had done in, in the lab with uh, live percussionists who in some ways recreated the sounds, but were sort of interacting with the recordings using deep learning to kind of have this human cod communication. And that was a lot of fun. So some hundreds of people saw that uh, in Norway. That's mm. awesome. So Holly, you have moved institutions since you were last on the podcast, which was also, I think, at the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021. Um, so what's new with you? How's the new position? 
how was moving during COVID, starting a new position. I think we've all got some experience of that to some degree. Yeah, yeah a bit of a nightmare, I suppose. Um, but no, I'm super happy to have moved. So I'm currently doing um, a new postdoc uh, position here in Leicester. Um, so it's still in the same, roughly the same research area on epigenetic mechanisms in weird bugs, arthropods, so spiders, whatever kind of creepy crawly you can imagine um <laughs> imagine your dna as like a long string and epigenetics just means um chemical marks that sit on top of that dna code and then change how the dna works um yeah so kind of chemical chemical modifications and so i'm back working on uh bumblebees now and these strange kind of parasitic wasps and so the idea here is we're looking to try and figure out functionally what do some of these uh, molecular mechanisms, these epigenetic mechanisms do in our weird insects? Because we know they exist, but we don't really know what they're actually doing. <laughs> um, so trying to figure that out. Uh, yeah, it was nice to move. Um, so I was in Edinburgh previously, and that was beautiful city, lovely place to live. Difficult because I was there during the pandemic, so it was quite hard to integrate with the department, etc. You know, great department, lovely people, but yeah, it's nice to be in Leicester. So I did my PhD here um, and coming back is it's a real nice community of people. So it's very nice to, to have that community aspect. I think, I guess, especially post pandemic. <laughs> it's been very nice. Do you have physical bees or are you doing some field work or? <laughs> the vast majority, I'm computational. We might have bees uh, maybe in the next year. In all honesty, I'm not looking forward to that because they are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can imagine there's a, imagine a wooden box with a, a colony. Full of bees. <laughs> you have to open the lid and go in there with some tweezers and they're not happy. <laughs> so, yeah. I just remember in, in grad school, we had this incub this old, old incubator in the hallway and there was a sign on it that said, caution, live bees. <laughs> so like in my time at grad school, like I never opened that incubator. I have no idea if it was really live bees in there, but it was like effective as a deterrent for sure. Yeah, that's a great idea, actually, if you're trying to uh, like monopolize some lab space or uh, some <laughs> equipment. <laughs> um, so Holly, you, you mentioned you're working on some other creepy crawlies, which um, I think was your your words, not mine. <laughs> so um, what, what else have you got in the pipeline? Um, a few bits and bobs. I think the most recent one was, um, so I won a small grant with a, another postdoc uh, at a different university, like a cross-discipline type thing, which was really nice. And we're going to be looking at um, how epigenetic mechanisms change in these tiny um, water fleas, these little crustaceans. Uh, in response to microplastics in the environment. So that's mm. quite cool. Um, so today we're going to talk about open science. Uh, and I really actually have to credit Holly for inspiring this topic. Um, the definition of open science that tends to come up most often includes things like making your data available with your paper or publishing open access so that there aren't barriers to accessing research. But when Holly was last here to talk about her paper, we touched on some elements of open science that I hadn't thought about before, like making your past grant applications available as resources for people to use and, and so on, uh, which really broadened my understanding of of what open science is so i'll ask this question of everyone but holly i'd like to start with you if i may um what does open science mean to you and what has been your personal experience with 
incorporating that in your career and research? And what aspects of that do you consider to be most important? Well, like you say, it's very broad, open science generally. So I think the thing, as you mentioned, that we all think of are open access papers, because of course we need the knowledge to be freely available to everybody. For me, it's kind of making the academic system a bit more accessible. So just personally, when I kind of ended up in academia, it was purely by chance. I had no idea as a school child how you could become a scientist. No idea. I didn't know what a PhD was. I didn't know why you would even consider doing one. <laughs> um, and it was only by pure luck that I got a very good lecturer during my undergraduate degree who said, oh, you seem to like research. You seem to like science. So go and do a PhD. And he explained the whole system. So I got very lucky. I think unless you are from an academic background or maybe have academic friends or family, you just wouldn't know that you could do this um, or, or even you wouldn't know about the kind of etiquette that's involved in this system because it's quite different to industry and, and kind of standard workplaces, I think. So for me, open science is making sure it's clear to people how to, to go into academia and then kind of trying to demystify the, the etiquette idea. You know, is it okay to just contact the head of a lab and say, hey, have you got any jobs? Or is that not okay? You know, those those sorts of things. So making it clear what you do if you want this career and, and how you might go about doing it. Uh, so open science to me, yeah, mm -hmm. I guess I hadn't thought about open science so much. A goal of it is to increase accessibility, but I quite like that. And so for me, open science, I'm most interested in it with the goal to increase reproducibility. Um, so given my past experience with dealing with some paper retractions due to um, problems in the data, uh, you know, those problems were only caught because like the data was publicly deposited. And the thing that's funny is like we only deposited that data because the journal required it. And so I think of like, man, had we sent that paper to a different journal that didn't require data to deposit, like we would have never caught this problem. And so to me, that's like depositing data should be the standard. Um, you know, of course, there may be our exceptions, but I think it's basically it should be the rule. I think depositing code or however you can reproduce your results and how you got them so other people can be like, oh, yeah, sure, that makes sense. The other thing I think about code depositing is so critical is like, how many times have you been trying to solve like a statistical problem and you like read a paper and they like did the exact thing you wanted? But then like you don't know how to take that concept and like physically the syntax you need in R. Oh, like it's yeah. so frustrating. And so it's like, let's not all recreate the wheel all the time, but why don't we actually learn from each other? Uh, so that to me is the side of open science that I'm really interested in, um, I think for yeah some personal reasons. Yeah, I find it so interesting how our different experiences and perspectives lead us towards kind of different niches within open science, I guess, but of course they're all like really interconnected. I guess to me, it's about making the knowledge of all types. So including about the academic system, but also like the scientific content of, you know, the research that we're doing to make all that knowledge as accessible as possible, but while also ensuring that the benefits of that knowledge are appropriately and equitably shared. And that's, I think that second part gets left out of the conversation a lot. Like it's not black and white. And sometimes I see it being portrayed that way. Um, like open is always good and closed is always bad. I think there's a lot of good reasons to not have all no knowledge available for everyone. For example, when you need to consider the rights of people to the information that's collected about them or about their land 
And so I think open science is a balancing act then because at the broadest levels globally across countries and institutions, you need to avoid things like helicopter science and you need to make sure that the knowledge that comes out of peoples and lands benefit those people. But then also at the individual level, it's not black and white either. So acknowledging that open science is a spectrum and to accept a wide range of individual choices within this space is also super important. I see a bit of like shaming sometimes for people choosing closed options. And I don't think that's helpful. Um, It's just not that simple because we don't live in a society in which actually 100% openness would be fair either. Mm. So yeah. Kate, you and I are probably at similar-ish career stages. Um, So I I imagine that Mm -hmm. my experience is probably roughly the same as yours, which is that when I started my PhD, people were not depositing data. Like that was not something that you did. Um, and certainly not code, <laughs> which is probably uh, good for the, like the quality of code I was producing in my uh, early PhD. And Holly and Rebecca, I'm sure it's probably, you've also seen that um, change. But something it strikes me that um, I wasn't really taught how to, pro- how to produce good code and like Definitely produce not, yeah. good data. And do you think that's something that has improved? It feels to me like there are computer scientists or folks who have training in computer science who know how to document their code. And so these are the like the GitHub gurus. They like know how to have their GitHub repositories. Um, Whereas me now, I just like formed my first GitHub repository like last year. And so I feel like I'm sort of cobbling together and now figuring out the best way. Um, And so I think there's a opportunity there. And maybe I'm, I'm just not aware of the resources to translate that of like, here is reproducible code for scientist dummies 101. Um, I would really love to see that sort of thing. So if anyone knows of that, please let us know. Journals, now some journals require it, but not all. Uh, and then even the journals that do require it, some there is wide variation in how much they actually check for that in the terms of like, is your code deposited in the appropriate format? Do you have all the metadata? Is it even in like a, d- a format that you could download and use. I think I saw something on Twitter where uh, some paper deposited their code, but it was actually like screenshots of an Excel file. So that, like if you ever wanted to use their code, you would have to enter all in that screenshot into your own Excel file. That's crazy to me. Um, oh. so, yeah, <laughs> Could you imagine like how awful would that be? So yeah, they followed the letter of the law, but they did not follow the spirit of the law. That's for sure. So I think, so, yeah, some more guidance on uh, just like best practices and like best easy practices too, like things that a normal human scientist can do um, that, you know, if you're not a computer scientist, um, you can handle it. Mm. Holly, you, you're a GitHub, or at least you're GitHub curious, or are you, <laughs> are you fully in the GitHub sphere? I am. <laughs> Um, so this I'm really glad you've asked that actually because I wanted to just touch on what Kate has just said about making your code like accessible rather than you know screenshotting code is just is sounds horrendous (laughs) um but there was certainly a, a thing when I moved to Edinburgh where we were all coders and this was the first time I'd been in a group of people who were all coding um and so we discussed what what are the good ways we can share within our lab outside of our lab and what was really interesting was one of my colleagues said even if you're ashamed of your code because it's not the best code you know you're not a bioinformatician you should still put it up because maybe it will be useful to somebody and it's and it's in the spirit of this open 
access, you know, this is how the analysis was done. And so we had a rule that um, you weren't allowed to code shame anybody. <laughs> Not for advice, <laughs> no code shaming. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, it, I think it's an excellent idea. And I think it would be awesome just to encourage more people to just give it a go. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a full believer now in R Markdown. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned about R, I mean, I mean, I guess maybe like five years ago, but that seems to be a really good step towards making your code a bit more accessible and reproducible. And so for those that don't know, R Markdown is like this cool script where like you can have bits of script and then it'll output your output right below it. So as opposed to just getting one big code file where you have hundreds of lines of scripts and like you have to put it into R yourself to run it. This way, it just you can output like a PDF or an HTML, um, and then you can see all of this. And so I now like I love it when a paper has their R markdown because then like you see the code and you're like okay yeah yeah yeah, and then you see the output and you're like yes that's exactly what I want. Um, and so I think that's I've now told my lab I'm like at a bare minimum we're always going to deposit the R markdown file um, with our papers going forward. So they're all on board too. And I'm happy that's with a that. great idea. Mm-hmm. I think actually we were talking about guides for reproducibility. I think actually the British Ecological Society has a guide, um, mm-hmm. certainly for using R Markdown um, oh, as kind great. of like best practice for um, for creating reproducible code. So I'll put a link to um, to that in the episode notes. Um, okay, so I, I want to talk about open access publishing. This is coming up on Twitter a lot at the moment because a few journals are, well, a lot of journals are starting to move more into the open access publishing sphere, uh, but particularly recently a couple of big journals in our mm-hmm. field of ecology and evolution are transitioning almost entirely to open access. But while I'm sure we can all agree that openness and transparency in science and reducing barriers to accessing published work is a good thing, uh, embracing this fully in an academic and certainly a publishing context can come with a large cost, uh, like literally a large cost. (laughs) Um, So huge hikes in article publishing charges. So publishing in nature journals, for example, which is obviously highly coveted because of the huge impact factor, now comes with the hefty price tag of nine and a half thousand euros, which is completely unaffordable for many institutions, let alone individual researchers. Uh, So I'll open the floor for thoughts on open access publishing and what these costs mean for equity in science. Well, I'll just say, like, I saw that number on Twitter and it's like 11,000 US dollars. And I was like, laughed. I was just like, this is so ridiculous. Like, I feel like they've just jumped the shark in terms of, yeah, we're the biggest, best journal out there and we're just going to do whatever the heck we want. And we know people will still flock to us. And it was it's just so ridiculous. I mean, who has that sort of money? Um, you know, maybe only the most well-funded biomedical, um, those massive mega labs somewhere, but like, you know, American labs wouldn't have that sort of money and certainly then not any, you know, labs from like the, the global South yeah. uh, or certainly some labs, but it would be more difficult, like $11,000. I feel like that's, that's the extent of like some PhD stipends probably. Good grief. That's all I have to say. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think that the, um, this, you touched on this issue of prestige, like we need to stop giving these publishers so much power Mm. by valuing that 
um, so highly such that individual researchers don't necessarily have much choice if they want a career. So yeah, sort of tackling the, the root of the problem there. Um, the only institutions that I can see that really have power in this space is the funders of the research. They have the power to say, we will not pay this. Um, but also we won't judge your grant application more highly just because you have a nature paper, because that's not something that, that we value as much. So any real change has to come from the funders more so than, than the individual researchers, which are kind of put in a tough spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kate mentioned as well that there's this issue of, like, we are all in a relatively privileged position of being attached to wealthy universities. Uh, I'm still um, at University of Lund in Sweden, and Sweden has uh, agreements with publishers such that I published a couple of papers last year and didn't have to pay any open access fees because that was all covered through the university. But Same here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but universities in the Global South, for example, you know, some universities just can't cover these charges and then that's going to uh, mean that their research is underrepresented. Yeah, well, I think we've seen a lot of good progress, like I'm just thinking about when I was in Germany, Germany is like a country was doing this whole thing of like forcing open access. And so now if you publish in Germany, there's like rules about how open access your papers have to be. Um, and that has been really transformative, you know, and like kind of shifting the values that they're using. And then a similar thing is like the University of California system, which I think is like the biggest university system in the world has like been pushing to figure out like um, fees for all these like journal subscriptions from the library. And that's been really transformative. And so that doesn't, that hasn't yet solved, that's solving a slightly different problem of like open access generally, but not then the cost of it. But it does seem like that is now like we're seeing success of that avenue of like these massive institutions that are pushing um, to re readjust how we handle the publishing. And so maybe that's like one thing is that we have to hope that these institutions can figure out a way around these publishing costs. I don't know if this is like a complete overhaul of how we do scientific publishing. I mean, don't even get me started on the fact that like science and research is funded by taxpayers and yet we have for-profit journal companies, like is basically yeah, then a yeah. governmental subsidy. Like it's mm. just, yeah, so there's things need to be adjusted. Um, the problem of course, is that we're humans. We always want to categorize things and find shortcuts. And this is why journals maintain power is because of course, like you, something gets published in nature doesn't necessarily mean the science is that much better, but it does mean that like means something in the sense like you're able to sell it a little bit better um, to have nature want to pick it up. So a potential, though perhaps imperfect solution is um, preprints. Um, so preprints are uploaded manuscripts in their mm -hmm. more or less finished format that are just available online. Um, without actually going through the publication process. Uh, this has become more, more common, I think, in, in recent years. Uh, and it at least means that research is getting out there in an open way. Rebecca, you were part of a team that published an article last year about preprints in ecology and evolution. Can you briefly summarize that paper for us and, and why, why you wanted to look at that? Yeah, sure. 
so this was a paper led by Jesse Wolf um, during his master's, um, along with six other undergraduate and, and uh, graduate students at the uh, Trent University in Canada. I think we've all heard a lot of debates about costs and benefits of preprints, and it'd be impossible to cover them all in this episode, but there's some other good, good literature on that maybe we can link to. But in terms of what was interesting for these early career researchers was they recognized that the, these costs and benefits could vary by career stage. And so the question was, does your propensity to preprint your work depend um, on career stage, just comparing early career researchers and more senior folks? They brought me into this project partway, so I must give most of the credit to them. <laughs> I helped on the statistics and uh, yeah. In, in wrapping up the paper, but they found that early career researchers preprint disproportionately more than senior folks, and that it also varied a bit depending on the size of the institution. Uh, early career researchers at larger institutions also preprinted more. So this was a way of just providing a bit of empirical background to the discussion of the consequences of preprinting for the field of ecology and evolution, and. What are the potential barriers to preprinting? We wanted a, a way to discuss the potential power dynamics between early career researchers and more senior researchers and who actually makes the call <laughs> for whether work will be preprinted. It's not always uh, in the early career researcher's power. So it really opened up a, a broader discussion of the barriers to preprinting actually in ecology and evolution. Mm. If I was asking you to speculate, uh, do you think that those results represent perhaps a generational shift in attitudes to open science? Yeah, I mean, that's my gut instinct that it is a generational shift in that there's a much larger push for rapid access to, to data, um, to, to scientific information in general. There's a push for these kinds of transparency also in the publication process. So just this, this generational push for transparency and, and, and rapidness, but also inclusivity and just making this knowledge available to anyone anywhere in the world who has an internet connection. That's something that I think a lot more of the younger generation is particularly concerned about uh, right now. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's something to do with it. But then also there's the individual level. And there's, of course, a lot of good arguments why you shouldn't preprint just for individual benefits. But from the early career researcher individual benefit perspective, they can, you know, be very helpful on a job application or a grant application. And that's something we just have to recognize and say, how can we we can reconcile the individual benefits versus the societal benefits and also the societal risks potentially of having, if you do have really crappy research, get out there. Although I think the majority of the, of the research into this topic has shown that it's like mostly pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a danger. And I think that danger also depends on, on the field. I mean, it's very different if you're talking about some kind of clinical study of the effects of some kind of treatment versus the 
I don't know, the mating behavior of a <laughs> random frog, you know, like, so I think you need to take a risk analysis. With <laughs> it's a really complex issue. Um, so yeah, I think preprints can definitely offer a partial solution, but we need to find ways to shore up against these concerns. Uh, so any last thoughts? Um, what should we be doing to promote open science practices in the ecology and evolution community? What could be done better? What do we hope to see uh, in the next decade? I put rather optimistically in my notes. <laughs> well, for me, I hope it becomes a norm of uh, publishing your data and publishing your code. That to me seems like a very simple, simple, um, relatively easy step that we can take to increase the rigor and reproducibility of science. I think one thing we can do is talk about it and mm -hmm. complain mm -hmm. about it. <laughs> and <laughs> spread the word that maybe just we should be exploring more alternatives and, and don't just, the important thing is to not just accept it how it is. <laughs> mm. I mean, I would echo exactly what you both just said, 100%. And I think the only thing I would add is to have more in-depth conversations like this like I feel I've learned a lot just from the four of us sat here especially Rebecca some of the things you said about why you might not preprint a paper mm. I just hadn't I hadn't thought of those kind of ideas and I think that that's really made me yeah think about it so more more purposeful conversations I guess <laughs> yeah I really like diving into the details of the alternatives because I feel like so often the conversation is you know, peer review is broken or the publishing system is broken. And then people suggest an alternative and folks will be like, well, that doesn't solve this problem. And you're like, well, yeah, but like we can't, you, there's not going to be one thing that solves everything. Incremental change will have to accumulate over, over time. Yeah, exactly. I think incremental change is the key here. Yeah. Pushing forward. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much everyone for your thoughts on that. That was really, um, interesting and illuminating and it's uh, reminded me to go back to our markdown and <laughs> um, and I'll link to uh, everything else that we've talked about in the discussion in the episode notes so thanks very much uh, Kate Holly and Rebecca for coming on and coming back on to the returner guests yeah thanks very much it's been great talking to you all yeah thanks thank you thank you thanks Kirsty. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I hope you found these conversations as interesting and useful as I did recording them. Thanks again to today's guests. As always, their information and links to the things we've talked about today will be in the episode notes on the website, thewepodcast.org. And a reminder that you can always let me know what you think by getting in touch. I love hearing from you. Given how many people have moved and started new roles during the pandemic as I recently have, maybe you'd like to have an episode about new beginnings. Let me know or pass on any other suggestions by dropping me a line. You can do that via DM on the socials at the underscore we underscore podcast or emailing me hello at the I'll be back soon, I promise, with a great episode on coping with rejection. My guests next time are Elizabeth Carl and Megan Petersdorf, Alexis Roberts and Ariel Carl, and it's a great one. Don't miss it, but until then, take care.